On the Empire Podcast this week, we make loud noises with Adam McKay as he tells us how Feiss almost killed him. Feiss, the movie, not Feiss as in being addicted to heroin. That didn't almost kill him. I have to make that absolutely clear for legal reasons. <laughs> I think it was either Christian Bale or Dick Cheney just saved my life. <laughs> Plus the usual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is being recorded back to back and being released over two consecutive weeks. It's all the rage these days. You guys will not believe the cliffhanger that ends this episode. It is going to be huge. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by the full set, the full complement, three colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up, we have our glorious leader, Empire's editor-in-chief, Terry White. Hi, Chris. Uh, what have you been up to? What have you been doing? What have I been doing? Making a magazine? Empire magazine? Have you yeah. heard of it? Yeah. No, is it any good? Ah, uh, you know. Okay. Three stars. I'll check it out. Three stars, as we always say in this podcast, is, of course, a recommendation. And uh, Next up, we have our geek queen, just back from exotic climbs, but probably can't say where or why or when or how. No. Or why? Did I say why already? No, I can't say any of those things. Helen I can say that I can say that live gunfire was involved, probably. doesn't. Narrow it down. Northern Ireland. Much. You went back. Home. That's right. Hey. Oh, well done. How were Exotic they? climbs of <laughs> Northern Ireland. God it's bless. Got, it's got a coast. It, it does have a coast. It's got a giant's causeway. That's exotic. It does have a giant's causeway. How many places have something that was built by a giant? There is the other end of it in Scotland, in that cave. Shut up, Helen. <laughs> shut, shut up. And James Dyer is also here, which is nice, I guess. Hi, Chris. <laughs> you right, right, Jimbo? <laughs> yes. I feel like with Terry here, we just need to get Boyd in and then we can just take over and make it a pilot TV spin-off. <gasps> oh, good Lord. Co-pro, co-pro. But you're the spin-off. I like to think that in many ways, like CSI Miami before it, we have surpassed the original in well, many ways. Well, actually, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> actually, a better example would be Law and Order Special Victim Oh, here we go. Versus here we go. the original Law No, the, the better example would be NCIS, because nobody even remembers what it was. Who watched NCIS LA? No no no, 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 no. NCIS itself is a spin-off. Is it? TV man. Well done. Oh, 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 oh I'm oh. James. Oh, hang on. Is it, was it, was it Jag? Hey, yeah. you got oh, there in the end. I yes. host a pilot oh my TV. God. I you know, know everything. I used to watch Jag. I've never watched NCIS, but I watched Jag religiously when it was on. Well, NCIS is better than Jag. Oh, but that's ridiculous. No, it's not. I think Terry Terry does make a good point, though, about how SVU has in many ways eclipsed Law & Order. But did you know, Terry, that season 20... No, no, I'm not, even, I'm not even going to get it. That's, that, that's a discussion for uh, pilot TV. Cutting that bit out. Uh, but... Because uh, SVU, as of this season, season 20, has equal Law & Order's record. And Law & Order itself had equaled the record of Gunsmoke for longest-running live-action US TV series. This is not the TV anniversary we want to talk about, though. It's coming up on 300 episodes of Supernatural. So let's keep our focus where it should be. Thank you very much. <laughs> Helen, what do you say to a pilot TV Supernatural special that you could come on? That would be great. Yes, please. Categorically not. Not not to Helen. Categorically not to Supernatural. It's going to be an all-topless podcast in honour of Sam and Dean. Literally Just you and Boyd. Just you and Boyd. Moobs out for the ladies. That's it. Oh, That's whoa, whoa, it. whoa. Come on. There are no moobs on that show. She's not no, not, not in Supernatural, but no. in the, oh, okay, right, yeah. the spin-off podcast me and boyd i know sam and dean i I, i'm sorry you've broken me Uh, (laughs) nothing more to add so supernatural is now 300 episodes in Uh, i was very sad this week to hear that criminal minds is going to be uh, finishing after 15 seasons and over 300 episodes they they've been commissioned for their 15th and final season of just 10 episodes to wrap it up Um, who's left it is time who's left 
Like, Hotch has gone. You know, Mandy Patinkin went a long time ago. Well, Mandy Patinkin went after season two. Uh, Hotch, uh, Thomas Gibson, went after, how should we say, an onset contretemps. (laughs) And Shamar Moore's now in that SWAT show, isn't he? So he's not in it anymore. De la (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Shamar Moore's... There's still loads left. Derek's left. Derek's left. Yeah, he's He's still in it. What about Matthew Gray Gubbler? Is he still in it? Yeah, he's still in it as Dr... Dr. Spencer Reed. <laughs> it's more like Kermit the Frog. Yeah, I actually can't do a Spencer Reed impression, but for some reason now it's coming out like, Kermit the Frog, I'm Spencer Reed. I mean, that's I not that dissimilar. Yeah, that's true. Has he cut his hair yet? Uh, he cuts his hair quite a lot yeah. and then it grows long again and okay. it gets un- un- unkempt and disheveled Joe Mantegna is still in it Padgett Brewster is like a yo-yo she leaves the show she comes back to the show she leaves the show she comes back to the show Padgett Brewster you know her from I do from the Thrilling Adventure Hour yeah and Friends where she played I don't remember I don't remember either Kathy Kathy oh, oh Cheetah yeah, Chandler she did play Kathy the Velveteen Rabbit yeah mm-hmm. yes oh, yeah. yeah yes it's all coming back to me now yeah she came between Chandler and Joey that's it but not in, not in a sex way. Um, I mean, literally oh in a sex way, but, you know. Tied 45 this week, everybody. <laughs> Tied 45. Anyway, uh, should we have a question? Sure. Here we go. The question is from Twitter. It is from at Lionel32. As we enter 2019, what's the ultimate movie news you'd like to hear in the coming year, says Lionel32, who then goes on to say, for example, the announcement of new adaptations, sequels, What's in your wish list? Gene Hackman to come out of retirement? Pixels 2? <laughs> well, I know that's your wish list, Chris, right? Uh, yeah, Both he somehow those. incepted me. <laughs> yeah, I think he has. I'm hoping that somebody will be sorting through the late William Goldman's papers and find a completed script for Buttercup's Baby, which will then be made as some kind of animation with most of the original cast returning to voice it. I know I've said this before over the years, but I live in hope. Uh, that would be the sequel, of course, to The Princess Bride for those not keeping up at the back. <laughs> also, you know, I'd like a, a, the surprise news that Captain America is staying on for nine <laughs> more movies, all of them with the beard. And I don't mean Sharon, Sharon Carter. Carter. Thank yep, you. Yeah. You okay. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? What sort of utopia would we live in then? <laughs> uh, this is movie news. We can't do any, any political stuff. Let's stay away from that. Uh, Terry, what would, you, what would you like? Two things. Yeah. First of all... I'm kind of desperate for somebody to make The Power, you know, Naomi Mm. Alderman's book. I know there's talk of it being a TV series. I actually think it should be a film. I think if it becomes a a TV series, it's going to be very kind of um, Handmaid's Tale, episodic uh, grimness that kind of essentially whittles down into being something that feels like you're ripping your own skin off every (laughs) week. I think a a fantastically constructed 90-minute film is what I'm after. Mm. And I also want Kez 2. I, <laughs> I feel like we're both quite on brand. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there be more. How would that work? Well, I was thinking, because obviously it's been dead years and I realised that it's a long time between films. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what if there was a way to resurrect the original Kez due to science? <laughs> science means that Kev, Kez comes back to life and Billy Casper must now be, what, like 60 or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Billy Casper, in the final chapter of his own life, brings back to life Kez. Mm-hmm. It's like Last of the Summer Wine, hmm. but with more birds. <laughs> that, now, that's a log line I can get on board with. <laughs> All right, okay. So it's not the original Kez, which is obviously, you know, 
I don't want to give any spoilers away for Kez, but because ultimately the bird dies. Um, but yes, the bird dies. But it's a film. Uh, it's a film of hope and optimism because actually, a boy who was looking at nothing apart from a life down the pit and turning into his older brother and drinking too much, and you know, actually found hope and optimism and beauty in the world via his relationship with Kez. It's an optimistic film until. The bird dies. But actually, all it shows is that he has that capacity to love and to be loved inside him. How about you, James? What would you like to see, positively thinking? What would I like to see? I would like to see, in the wake of the Fox-Disney merger, for them to finally announce that the original Star Wars trilogy will be released in high def, properly remastered, unaltered by Lucas in their theatrical format. That would be very nice. With, would... with the Fox fanfare. With I know the Fox that. fanfare. I know you can. Oh, yeah. If it has Wish Upon a Star at the beginning and we burn the house down... Uh, I'd also like to see Aliens released in 4K and cleaned up because that is a film that has an awful lot of film grain on it. If you watch it now, even in HD, it does not look good. So it would cost a lot of money, I think, to to properly remaster that for 4K. Uh, and I would like James Cameron to do that. What's hilarious, though, is that Cameron has a backlog of stuff, so there's no Blu-ray release of The Abyss or I think True Lies at the moment. Mm-hmm. But apparently he has versions of that waiting for his approval. Like, they've done passes on it and he needs to sign off on it but he's so busy with avatar he just can't spare the time to look at them so it's in limbo because his schedule doesn't allow it that's what he says james cameron's schedule i believe contracts and moves depending on what he chooses to spend his time on i mean avatar is the answer and like mung bean salads and massively producing Alita, which he was very hands-on <laughs> yeah, with too. on a daily that, basis. Yeah, that too. That too. And occasionally sending notes to uh, to the set of the new Terminator film. But, you know, so he's, he's got other things on his yeah. plate. But, you know, get off, get off your arse, Jim. Get off your I mean, arse. You know. I don't think that man sat in his arse in years. Yeah. Start yeah. working on Aliens, please. He That'd pays be. other people to sit in his arse for him. <laughs> that sounded weirder than yeah. I intended. Uh, no. What I mean is... As your lawyer. <laughs> yes. No, he has other people to sit down for him. Right. That's what I meant. Where mm. he does all the running around. I didn't mean sure. a weird sex thing. Yeah. If that's what you thought I was... No. Uh, I'd also like to see Eric Idle and Robbie Coltrane reunite for Nuns oh, on the Run 2. Oh, Christ. Back in the habit. That was already used for a <laughs> Nun sequel, <laughs> and you know it. I know. I want to use it again. Everything's uh, coming up rosaries. Hey! hey! Wow. <laughs> I didn't deserve that, but okay. Uh, if I had one wish, 10-hour mm-hmm. Avengers Endgame spoiler special with the Russo. So that's, that's what I would want. But that's not really what the question was. The question was, what news would I like to see? Um, I don't know. I'm a pretty simple guy. I've got pretty simple tastes. I want every movie to be an MCU movie. Uh, <laughs> I want a 10-hour Avengers Endgame spoiler special. Those are just crazy. That's never going to happen. And even crazier stuff, I'd like to... Two more Mission Impossible movies shot back to back, <laughs> at least one after the other, and maybe Wait. a new Ghostbusters movie directed by the son of the <laughs> director of the original films. Chris, what? Maybe yeah. some of that isn't impossible after all. Maybe it's a Mission Possible. Holy shit! Uh, That's right. But but Helen, if I could be serious for a second, sure. HMVs are five in. I'd like to see mm. that happening, to be honest, because I feel that physical media is important, whether it's DVDs and Blu-rays or just final records. And I think that uh, it's a chain that probably was very instrumental in getting a lot of us into film and music over the years. And I don't like to see people losing their jobs fair. as well. So well, don't call me Mr. Weird, mm-hmm. but that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see HMP surviving. And while you're at it, bring back Blockbuster. Uh, all right. If you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast, as Lionel32 did, much to their dismay, 
or satisfaction, I'm guessing. You can get in touch via a number of methods. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. Or chances are we won't see it. We're also on Facebook as Empire Magazine. And you can email us as well, podcast at empireonline.com. Before we move on, I do have some sad news I want to share. And it's also, if I'm completely honest, it is a request uh, for you guys as well. Ian Stevens uh, was the former art editor of Empire magazine. He worked at Empire for a number of years. Really, really great guy. Fantastic art editor as well. And, uh, and it was a valuable part of Empire for many, many years. He now lives in L.A., with his wife, Nina. And recently he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, which has spread to his brain. Uh, he is undergoing treatment for this uh, terrible illness and it is experimental treatment. And uh, there is a cost involved with that as well, as you might imagine, given the healthcare system in America. So he has a GoFundMe uh, and it is www.gofundme.com forward slash Ian, I-A-N dash Stevens, S-T-E-V. E-N-S. Uh, he's a great guy and we would like to keep him alive, please. So if you can donate anything at all to that, then that would be much appreciated. Not just by Empire, of course, but by Ian and his wife, Nina. Get well soon to Steve's. Get well soon. Okay, should we have some movie news now? Well, there's hardly any this week, is there? I, did, I don't, didn't really notice anything. No. Oh, wait, you mentioned Should those two wish list on? items you had. Ah, but that's just crazy, Helen. Well, is it, though? Let's have a... Oh, my God. What's I happened? Looked. Are you all right? Christopher McQuarrie, Chris. Were? He's, he's signed happening? on for two more Mission Impossible movies to be shot back to back. That's amazing. This is your dream. That's what I asked dream? for. Oh. Uh, I had no prior knowledge of this whatsoever <laughs> when I said that previous bit. Oh, this is wow. incredible. Yes, indeed. So uh, it was announced this week to much excitement and much rejoicing that Chris McQuarrie is indeed going to write and direct the next two Mission Impossible movies to be shot back to back, but to be released in summer 2021 and summer 2022. Now, this is exciting. Uh, I think it's exciting. I think it's great. Uh, The two Mission movies that McQuarrie has directed, Rogue Nation and Fallout, are widely held by many people as the best or or amongst the best in the Mission Impossible series. And Fallout in particular was the uh, critical and commercial darling Biggest film of Tom Cruise's career. Hey. Would you believe? At the ripe old age of 56. Now, what do we think about this news? Are we excited about it? What do we think this means for the franchise? There is a uh, prevailing theory that this might be it for Cruise, that he'll be 60 by the time the the eighth Mission Impossible movie is released in 2022. Mm. Yes, but 60 in Tom Cruise years is about 35 in normal person years. So you have to kind of bear that in mind. This is true. (laughs) This is very true. Yeah, I categorically do not believe that that will be the end of Tom Cruise. I think what's really exciting is exactly what lengths they're going to go to Mm. cinematically from a stunt perspective. You know, he's doing Top Gun at the moment, which has been put back to 2020, Mm -hmm. primarily because of, I've heard from the ambition of what they're trying to achieve means they needed more time in production at Tom's request. Obviously, we're all very aware, no no more so than you, Chris, um, in your 734 hours of Chris McQuarrie. I think, roughly speaking, 734 hours. That's a conservative estimate. But yeah, yeah, conservative. I don't want to underplay it. You know, the, the, the great lengths in terms of the stunts and the practical work, and you just kind of, the mind boggles in terms of... And that was just one podcast. Yeah. <laughs> there was stunt work in our podcast. Wow. It was amazing. That's incredible. Where they're going to go to and what they can possibly try and achieve with this when you've got a filmmaker and, you know, Cruz, who is an actor but also now a filmmaker, their combined talents and ambition... If anyone is going to move the action genre on even further, it has to be them too, right? Mm. 
I'm going to steal my own joke from Twitter and say that mankind is going back to the moon. There's no other explanation. Um, I mean, how else does he does he top what he's done already? Go down to the base of the Marianas Trench, literally climb Everest. I just like I'm not sure what else. I think we go back to the, uh, the rattlesnake down the pants scenario. That we... <laughs> I mean, also that. I mean, maybe all three. He's got two more films to fill, you know. So all of those. But I also do I do think you know we t- we talk about the stunts and the action in Mission Impossible rightly because that's such a huge part of it. But also I think Macquarie and Cruz work brilliantly together on story and character and weaving those things together and giving the action a purpose and not just doing dazzling things for the sake of being dazzling. It's good storytelling as well as just great, great, incredible stunts. So I'm excited. Yes, I'm on board too. (laughs) (laughs) What more is there to say? The Mission Impossible films are absolutely firing on all cylinders and have Mm. been for a while. And the thought of having more of them, absolutely. Give me more. Give me all the missions. Make them impossible. Fight scene on the Titanic. Yes. Well, tra- time travel. No, no, literally yeah. on the Titanic on the seabed. Yeah. Okay. In submersibles. Oh. A bit like inner space, but under the sea and mm. not inside Martin Shaw. Mm. Yeah. I, I'm I'm excited about this because if anyone has listened to the six hours of Macquarie <laughs> podcast uh, that, that we recorded for Mission Impossible Fallout, we'll have probably heard him say multiple times that he's done with it, that he's not going to, he might stick around in a sort of producing capacity on the next one, but pity the poor soul who does the next movie uh it's crazy these things you know they kill you it's exactly what he said on the uh, rogue nation spoiler special uh so i'm excited because something has happened in the interim and i don't think it's just that someone drove a huge truck filled with gold bullion <laughs> up to his house uh, i think he's had an idea and it's an idea that is big enough for two movies and that excites me it might be a bit like childbirth though where it's a horrendous experience you say you'll never do it again and then nature makes you forget <laughs> Or maybe he just really likes doing spoiler specials. <laughs> it is. It's just to get, it's to get close to you, really. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it, it. Isn't it? All right, so that was the Mission Impossible news. I don't mm. think there's anything else to talk about. I think that's it. Should we just move straight on to the guest? There, uh, might, Adam be, McKay- what? there might be something else, Chris. There's something else. Yeah, what was the other thing on your wish list? Uh, I wanted, yeah. this is crazy, okay. I wanted a Ghostbusters movie set in the same universe as Ghostbusters 1 and Ghostbusters 2, but directed by the son of the director of the original movies. Well, you won't believe it. <laughs> what? But that's actually happening. And I would like a million dollars. <laughs> Please, Helen, tell me more about this. Jason Reitman will be making a a new Ghostbusters movie in exactly those circumstances. There's even a trailer. There is even a trailer. I mean, it doesn't give a lot away. No. But it's happening. It's a thing that is is underway. I have to say I'm genuinely gobsmacked because I interviewed him a few months ago for The Front Runner and I have to say, I think he, as a filmmaker, is back on form. You had that. Front Runner and Tully last year, both of which I think were fantastic. Um, I think after Up in the Air, he had kind of a difficult couple of years. And when I spoke to him, he was talking about the front runner and he was talking about Gary Hart, who's the politician in the front runner. And I really love the character of the daughter in that. And he said, well, it's funny because one of the things we connected over is being the child of somebody famous. Yeah. And more to the point, being the child of somebody who, when everybody talks to you, all they want to do is know about your dad. All they want to do is talk about your dad. Not in a kind of that there was a real issue there, but he still clearly felt that to some extent, as much as he's now a respected and recognised director, is that people still go, oh, my God, you're the son of Ivan Reitman. So I have to say I was gobsmacked. And I know he's pretty much said for a decade I would be the last person who could or should do a Ghostbusters film. And actually, when he's been quoted around this story, he said, you know, he went to his dad and said, I've got an idea. 
And his dad was as surprised as anyone else because they'd clearly talked about it. Mm. But he said he had an idea that was so emotional and so great. And he's on board as a producer as well that he thinks it's amazing and he's really excited by it. So I'm just, you know, you wonder what happened where he felt confident enough in himself as a filmmaker and thought, you know what, fuck it if people come to me and say, oh, it's your dad's film, what, what you think? That he feels able to put it out there as a filmmaker himself. I don't know if it's because he's just had two really quite successful films that have made him feel like it's the time to take this on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it takes proper balls to do that. I think yeah. it does. Because people will look at Jason Reitman's filmography and go, there's nothing like Ghostbusters mm. in his filmography. But he has directed comedy before mm. uh, on the uh, big screen, but also on the small screen as well. He directed a number of episodes of The Office. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a lovely story that you know he feels so connected to this movie. He said in his statement uh, that Ghostbusters is his favourite film. He's in Ghostbusters too. He has a single line. Uh, there was a, a, a shot going around this week of him on the set of Ghostbusters when he was just six years old. And... Uh, if you can bring some of that heart uh, and emotion to the story as well, we know nothing about what it's going to be, but also the funny. He has to bring the funny to yeah. it as well. And that that little, I don't even know what it is that he circulated today. Is it a teaser? Is it just a, a test shot that they were shooting? Because this thing has been developed for a while, it seems, in secret under the title Rust City uh, over there at Sony. And it's going to start shooting in a, in a few weeks' time as well in order for release next next year. So that reveal of Ecto-1 under a tarpaulin with special effects already present and looking complete, that fascinated me. I don't know what, exactly what that is, but that felt interesting. It didn't really feel stylistically anything in the mm. first two Ghostbusters, but uh, it also felt weirdly of a piece. I guess it was because they used the music. I think it's also, I'm relieved that they haven't kind of turned their back on the Ghostbusters universe, you know, after the all-female reboot, which we're, we've talked about on the podcast before, the kind of all the issues around that and the mm-hmm. horror around that. But it was, you know, what did it take? 229 million. It was a... It did, it did, fin- it did okay. Yeah, it yeah, did okay, yeah. but it, it wasn't kind of either critically or, or commercially kind of a huge hit. But, you know, Reitman was very kind of keen to point out, I think, that this is part of the same universe, as you mm-hmm. say, present day, just as that was present day in the 80s, and kind of distancing this film away from the last film in terms of obviously that was a reboot that existed entirely in silo and i think that's deliberately to kind of re-engage that spirit we saw with the first two as you say i agree jimbo any thoughts on this i'm i'm cautiously optimistic like i'm not like nick de who insists that ghostbusters 2 is the superior hmm. ghostbusters film which is mad <laughs> uh but yeah I, i'm on board i'm on board i'm i'm Happy, but not taking for granted that it will be great. But did you also see that Dan Aykroyd tweeted, shared the teaser, mm. which got me really excited because yes. obviously he's been working on Ghostbusters <laughs> 3 for the longest forever. time. Yes, forever. And I think for this to kind of have, have his buy-in, we know nothing about who might be back or who might yeah. be in it, but I think already it's like, okay, we're we a go. This is yeah. going to be good. So what do we think this is going to be? Uh, speculation on the story. There's there's rumours that he's looking for four teenagers to uh, to star in this movie. But do we think that's going to be the focus? Do we think that any of the surviving cast are going to come back? You'd imagine so, right? Mm-hmm. They showed up in the yeah. Paul Feig movie. Nuts. You'd think they'd show yeah. up in this yeah. one. My only trepidation here is there is a part of me that likes to think that when there is a thing you love, a classic thing, it is on an island of its own it is a standalone thing and you love it that it is possible to retroactively diminish something by adding to it so what you're saying is we should stop feeding off the 80s nostalgia i mean yes a little bit a little bit like that but yeah. it's just like and, and we'll get into this later on in this podcast but obviously there's a film out this week which picks up a film that i absolutely love and continues that story and to my mind has then lessened 
that original a little bit for me because I will never be able to now watch it again without having this in the back of my head. So sometimes it's not a good thing. Just to end on a really bum note. <laughs> oh no, because that doesn't it doesn't diminish the original movie. The original movie remains the same. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Oh, I, yes. I can't I can't explain why you're wrong without giving away the uh key plot points in glass. But there are certainly <laughs> there are certainly sections of that where like when I next watch Unbreakable, I will have scenes from glass in my head and I will be irritated. But can I just say on the 80s nostalgia point that Helen is absolutely right and if you want to hear more from Helen on the 80s <laughs> you can pick up the book that she wrote. What's it called? Helen O'Hara's mm. brilliant Helen O'Hara's 80s films. Best 80s movies? Yes. Which is not quite true. It's, but that's it's, okay. it's a subversive text which is in many ways casting a side eye at the exploitation of 80s nostalgia but by taking it down from the inside. No, it's something that I was asked to write <laughs> and wrote and in doing so went back and watched all the 80s films so I know how exploited they are because I had to consider uh, how many how of them dangerous. have been sequelized and TVized and everything. Oh my God, yeah. so many. So rebooted. Many. Do you know what hasn't been rebooted? Uh-huh. I mean, loads of things. Mm-hmm. Should we start a list uh, from the 80s? War Games? Yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Like, yeah. you know, by now he should be taking it. Yeah, Although there was off, a, wasn't he? there a TV show at the time? There has been a TV show. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. yeah. Ferris Bueller's Zero Hours Contract, it would be. <laughs> That'd be the sequel. Oh, God, that's depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Ferris Bueller would be heavily involved in the government shutdown right now, by the way. <laughs> yeah. You just know. He'd just absolutely know. be in the Trump White House. He's 100%. A punchable little shit. <laughs> um, the John Wick trailer's just dropped. Whee! Yes, John Wick 3 Parabellum. Parabellum. It's back. It was Parabellum, then it wasn't Parabellum. Now it's back to being Parabellum. <laughs> Parabellum, 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 Parabellum. <laughs> It's almost like we rehearsed that, but we didn't. That is absolutely mad. That's not watch it, shall we? Let's just save no. that for well, after. Yeah. But that's just assume that it was amazing yeah. and we loved yeah. it and it's fantastic and we're very, very excited. But John yes. Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum. Well, at, le- at least there was one trailer this week. I don't think there were any other trailers that were interested there were in, no, were there? No, there were no other trailers. Other trailers. Can't, can't, can't think of there was some other casting news. Oh, yes. Oh, some oh, Charlotte Rampling is joining Dune, which is very exciting. Yeah, they're, the they're rampling the uh, Reverend uh, Mother. Yeah. She who will appoint the Kwisatz Haderach. That's right. And um, for people who are normal, what is <laughs> what is that? Hey, this is a very mainstream book. She's like the mother superior of the kind of magic witch priest nun people. Yeah. Who live on the sand planet with and the she, wormy things. She, well, actually, they No, don't, no, she doesn't. They no. don't. Okay. No. And she has, she has determined the sort of genetic line that will lead to the yes. birth of... The Kwisatz Haderach, which is like, which is the Messiah. Great. Anyway, but she'll yeah. be good. So Charlotte Rampling, that's uh, a so, very good bit of casting. So that happened. That was good. Um, there was uh, some other casting news as well. That uh, Danny Glover has joined the cast of uh, the new Jumanji film, the sequel to Welcome to the Jungle. I guess we can call it Jumanji Three for the time being. Cool. Uh, and in fact, I have a theory. Right. Because Danny DeVito joined the cast uh, just before Christmas, okay. and so my suspicion is that this time it's a group of OAPs who get Whoa. sucked into the video game world. What an acting challenge that will give The Rock and Karen Gillan <laughs> and Jack Black and Kevin Hart. What an acting challenge it is for them. That could be fun. I'm here for it. I'm all. I'm all for that. Yeah. It's going to be good. Um, just also in casting, Anne Hathaway uh, is going to lead Robert Zemeckis's remake mm. of The Witches. Mm. That's good. Readaptation. Yeah. That's good for her. Um, I'm very yeah, happy. I think that's what cool. is it? What? Good. I mean, she's no, she's no Angelica, Angelica Houston. Houston. That's my thing, right? Yeah. Is her performance in that film remains one of the kind of most memorable, mm. terrifying moments of my childhood. The moment she takes off her wig and her gloves is mm. just remarkable. I still, mm. it's burned on my brain. And Can Hathaway, 
Anne, she, Anne Hathaway. Anne, <laughs> Anne, the Hathaway, as I'm calling her, the Hath. Can she do that that level of menace and fear? We are yet to see. I think she can. I think she's got it in her. Do you? Yeah, I think all those people who hate her, I think they've been sensing it all along. Oh, they've been sensing the malevolence. Mm. <laughs> sensing the malevolence. The Terry White story. <laughs> Um, I'm excited about that that's good mm. uh, there was some other casting news this week I don't think it was really anything else really to talk about but uh, so The Many Saints of Newark the Sopranos prequel that is uh, co-written by David Chase and directed by the uh, Sopranos I guess stalwart mainstay director Alan Taylor he of Thor The Dark World added some cast members we already had Alessandro Novola on board and he's going to be Dickie Moltisanti who is uh, Christopher Moltisanti's dad I believe so John Bernthal Fiera Farmiga Billy Magnuson and uh, Corey Stoll have all joined the cast of that movie. That's exciting, isn't it? Wait, John Bernthal and Corey Stoll? In the same movie, yes. Mm. I know what you're thinking. Darren Cross and The Punisher? How is that going to work? That's what I'm thinking. And um, uh, Steven Spielberg has found his Maria. Oh, Maria. For West, for West Side Story, he has cast a 17-year-old newcomer, Rachel Segler. And that's pretty much it, I think, really. I mean, Probably, there's some other yeah. some other movie news. There's uh, Aquaman made a billion finally at the box office. I say finally in just a few weeks. <laughs> I mean, who had Aquaman in the DC sweepstakes to beat a billion? I mean, uh, yeah. Not us. Well, Helen, if you go back to our Aquaman spoiler special. Oh, I, I, I agree you said say... it at that point once you'd seen it. But like yeah. on the page? Oh, initially? Us? Yeah. No. No, of course not. No. Absolutely. Shut don't, it down right don't now. Don't do it. No, no. stop it. Mm. Stop it right away. Step away from the megaphone. But uh, they sure proved us wrong. And it has an octopus playing bongos or drums or whatever. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. All right. Uh, that's pretty much it. Should we move on to something else? Wait, hang on. What? There was a Spider-Man Far From Home trailer. Oh, <laughs> that's what it is. That's what it is. There we go. Uh, Spider-Man Far From Home. It finally dropped this this week. Uh, there had been rumors of this trailer since before Christmas. In fact, I think at one point it was rumored to come out the same week, the day after the trailer for Avengers Endgame back in early December now, I guess that was. Uh, it didn't happen, and I think I can see why it didn't happen. Because <laughs> I think it would have diminished the impact somewhat of Avengers Endgame to have a Spider-Man trailer where Peter Parker, played by Tom Holland, is just walking around <laughs> and living. Not, not and blowing in the wind. Breathing, and yes, and not being made of dust and all that <laughs> stuff, all that beautiful stuff. So this is a, I thought this was a perfectly fun trailer. You see Peter Parker... There's two versions, the domestic version and the international version. Peter Parker is going on a school trip to Europe and there he gets involved with Nick Fury and uh, some shenanigans with some sort of water creature and Jake Gyllenhaal shows up with his helmet as Mysterio. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack from this trailer and Mm -hmm. people have requested that we discuss it at some length so I think we should uh, disappoint them. (laughs) (laughs) You're a monster. There's been a lot of timeline wrangling yes. Yes. about this where people are unsure whether or not this is pre or post snap and the fact that they're on a field trip and obviously when we encounter Spider-Man he's on a bus you're wondering oh are you returning from the field trip mm. in Infinity War and of course the answer to that is no as we know from the announcement of this film which said, said it was set afterwards yes so yeah I mean look it's a spoiler for Endgame I think we just have to accept that it's a spoiler for Endgame but basically if anybody seriously expected half the universe <laughs> to stay dead at the end of Endgame, then I'm sorry this has spoiled your fun. For the rest of us, it's not a big deal, I think. So yeah, Peter very, Parker is, yeah. is now moving on to the next stage of his life. Now, the only theory I've heard which I thought was interesting in terms of Endgame was the idea that half the universe has been 
taken into a mirror universe where everybody dead there is it's alive and vice versa. Leftovers. It's like that, yes. I don't think that's the case. But if you're really concerned about spoilers and you really want to believe that this is not set after Endgame or is not a spoiler for Endgame, then that's your out from now until April. Mm-hmm. You can believe that this is in Universe B and everybody else is in Universe A. Okay, trousers so of they're time. trousers of time. We're in a different leg of the trousers of time. Yeah. Well, it's not really that, is it? It's different. Like half the people are in one universe. This is the reality. This is the crotch of trousers of time. (laughs) We're stuck in the gusset. Oh, good lord! Yeah. So anyway, if you if you really want to believe it isn't a spoiler, then that is your out. I'm giving it to you. Thanks to someone on Twitter who gave it to me, and I apologise. I don't remember your name. I feel a little bit like when they announced Spider-Man: Far From Home, they spoiled Infinity War: Endgame. So we're fine. I think that there was always going to be a massive marketing challenge around this, and I think. Everybody involved realised that. And I'd, I'd heard the other timeline theory as well, which I kind of indulged in for a bit. Um, but yeah, as you say, the very thought that all those people would stay dead is, is clearly mm-hmm. absurd. What I do think is I loved it. I thought the tone was bang on, I have mm-hmm. to say. The last kind of five seconds, the effects yeah. were... Uh, I think I'd like to see more, but mm. there was... <laughs> Finished. But, uh, but it, was, it, it was a little bit challenging, but... I mean, there was that line where Peter Park says, oh, you're really pretty to Zendaya's character. And she says, oh, because that's where my value lies. <laughs> and that was just absolutely bang on. Oh, she's hilarious. I love her. Yeah. Isn't she just? But I thought it was a complete breath of fresh air, actually. Yeah, he's he's adorable. Um, timeline issues wise, apparently his passport was issued in 2016. Yeah. So I'm not sure what that does to anything. See, but I'm not ruling out that it takes place before Endgame. Okay. Because Ant-Man and the Wasp took place before Infinity War, but came out after Infinity War. And there's, I don't think it is going to take place before Endgame or before Infinity War but there's a chance that it might and maybe the password thing might play into that or maybe someone's just messed up again with the timeline <laughs> well, who wait, knows he would have had to get maybe didn't they have something about his passport him having a passport for going to Germany that... I get a sneaking suspicion that Tony Stark just smuggled him into Germany no, and I didn't think, tell I think anyone. there's a line about it though Yes, he does. Is it get your passport yeah or have you I think there's a line about it so actually that's maybe just a reference to Civil War Okay. I've literally just decided that right yeah, now. Yeah, that's that's a good idea. I like that. That seems fine. But, you know, a few people have said this. I mean, you know, you're right. The very existence of this movie is a bit of a spoiler. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, someone wrote in to me via DM and said, do you think it takes a complaint of traders giving too much away to a whole new level? And to which I replied, what does it give away? It gives mm-hmm. away nothing. And if you think that the revelation of how Spider-Man, Peter Parker, comes back is going to be given away in this trailer then you're sorely yeah. mistaken. It is not given away. All we know is that there's a Peter Parker walking around fighting something and Mysterio <laughs> yeah. seems to be helping out, which is interesting. And we yeah. haven't really talked about Mysterio. Mm. I mean, he's the he's got one of the weirder comics costumes. Mm. We have to acknowledge this. Like the, the fishbowl on his head. The fishbowl on his head. <laughs> In fact, half a fishbowl. It's not even a full fishbowl. It's like he's wearing a flying saucer. Yeah. There's been there's been a certain amount of um, I'll call it thirst for John Hall in this in this costume. He's I would say his helmet has caused quite the stir. I don't think it was the helmet that was doing it, Chris. I think it was think? the when he wasn't wearing the helmet that was causing the thirst. But yeah, I'm I'm excited about this movie. I think it's going to be uh it's going to be a nice change of tone after Endgame, which I don't expect to be a complete misery fest. I think it'll be triumphant ultimately, but mm-hmm. uh, it'll also have sad bits, like the bit where Captain America dies. Of, uh, <laughs> You're a monster! He survives a battle with Thanos, right. and everything's fine, and he just keels over. Very sudden, but he didn't suffer, Helen. You'd be glad to know. It was, no, it was I'm fair. not. I, this is not my headcanon. Go away. Anything else to say about this trailer? Happy days? I just love it. I love the chemistry that this cast has and these characters. Um, I think Tom Holland is just marvelous somebody asked me who my spider-man was recently you know because like 
it was Tobey Maguire. I don't think Andrew Garfield, bless him, became anybody's no. Spider-Man, really. And now, of course, we, we have an embarrassment of riches in, in both um, Tom Holland's live-action Spider-Man and Miles Morales and Friends. <laughs> but um, he's really he's really just nailed this character. I love him. Controversially, I preferred Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker to Tobey Maguire. Good Lord. Wow, that's that's one. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I love Andrew Garfield. I think he's great. I think the chemistry he had with Emma Stone was great, which was why their storytelling decision in the second one was so bad. <laughs> there were many storytelling decisions in the <laughs> yeah, second but one. The, but the, yeah, but the death, yeah. Yeah. And let's move on from movie news, and that's indeed welcome a guest. We have a guest? Let's have a guest. Uh, now, last week, at the end of the last week's show, we trailed Charlie Brooker as a guest, but clearly he decided to go full Bandersnatch <laughs> and choose the scheduling clash means you can't actually do the Empire podcast option. Uh, I hope this worked out for him. Good luck with your career, Charlie Brooker, I say. But we do have another guest, and that other guest is awesome. He is Adam McKay. Uh, he is the writer and director of some of my favourite comedies of the last few years. Uh, and James is as well. James loves everything Adam McKay has ever done. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Love love the anchor ball. Yeah, right. anchor ball. Yeah, anchor man. Dodge man. James just Dodge- loves comedy oh, generally, don't you? <laughs> um, anchor man, the... Legend of Ron Burgundy, Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, Step Brothers, it's the fucking Catalina Wine Mixer. <laughs> the Other Guys. And then, of course, he switched tack a few years ago to a slightly more serious film, a more politically aware film. He's very politically aware, very politically astute, very uh, active guy, Adam McKay. And uh, he won a bloody Oscar. Only went and won a bloody Oscar with a screenplay for The Big Short. And next week's film, Feist, uh, which tells the tale of how Dick Cheney emerged from humble beginnings to become possibly the most powerful man in the world. Uh, it plows a similar furrow uh, of politically active, very, very razor-sharp comedy that plays fast and loose with stylistic templates. It's a really interesting film, and McKay is a really interesting guy, and uh, he came in to talk to me recently at a London hotel, and we talked about all sorts of things, from Dick Cheney to McKay's very own, very recent, and all-too-real health scare on the movie. Enjoy. Check, check, check. That'll be fine. Excellent. Let's get a level from you, get a level from me. Check, check, check. I am speaking words. <laughs> human beings have formed words. How many times when you're doing this stuff do people say, the human torch was denied a bank loan? Is that, <laughs> does that happen a lot? The human torch was denied a bank loan. You know what? Not recently. <laughs> just, just nerds like me. It's been quite a while. It's been about 10 years since I've heard that. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I enjoy it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, one of my favorite ones is from Anchorman 2, where he screams like, ah, someone's in the house. (laughs) Save the children. And that's his vocal warm up. (laughs) That one may make me laugh the hardest. Yeah. I mean, you've won an Oscar since. Uh, should we just start? By the way? Yeah, we just yeah, start? Yeah, yeah, Normally, yeah. I do a big introduction, but I think I think we've kind of started. You've won an Oscar since last we spoke, but I said this to you before. You should have won one for for Dobby for best original song. It, you know, the the Oscars screwed you guys. I'm glad they made it up to you for the Big Short. <laughs> yeah, my God, I love Dobby. That, <laughs> there are a couple runs in that movie that are as delicious as anything we've ever done mm. and doby him blind in that lighthouse <laughs> being the worst blind guy ever <laughs> and also them discovering trash news yes with this kind of exuberance like yes. why do we have to tell them what they need to hear let's just tell them what they want to hear that run too i just Precisely. love yeah i wanted to start off by saying by welcoming you to the show thank and- you thank you I believe is actually we're we're lucky to have you. Oh uh, well, I guess in some ways, yeah. I uh, I had a little bit of a heart scare on uh, Vice. Uh, 
I'm one of those extremely intelligent gentlemen who decided to smoke for about 30 years. <laughs> and uh, while everyone told me it was going to kill me, and I uh-huh. said, ah, poo poo. Yeah, I'm, I'm sleeping, I'm, I'm dead. I'm the exception. So when Vice was over, I was working out with my trainer and I had a very serious heart scare. I had uh, tingly hands and, uh, and, but I didn't have chest pain or arm pain. Right. So I told my trainer, I go, I'm fine. It's just tingly and I feel a little queasy. So I convinced my trainer to leave. And, uh, and then right in that moment that I was sitting alone on the couch, I remembered Christian Bale telling me when we filmed the Dick Cheney heart attack scenes, yeah. how do you want me to do the heart attack? There's a lot of ways you could have heart attacks. And I was like, what are you talking about? I thought it's the arm and the chest. He goes, no, no. One of the more common ways is your stomach gets queasy and you feel sick to your stomach. And right at that moment, I jumped up and ran upstairs and popped about four baby aspirins and called my wife, who then called 911. And I got to the hospital and the doctor was like, why did you do that? Like you, there's no damage to your heart because you got in here so fast. He's like, you were having a heart attack, but you did what you're supposed to do. And I was like, my lead actor, (laughs) I think it was either Christian Bale or Dick Cheney just saved my life. Uh, that's no exaggeration that actually oh happened. God. Yeah. Yeah. And I called Bale about a week later. And of course he's a sweet guy. He's like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, no, honestly, I'm good, but I think you saved my life. And we just laughed. Jeez. Yeah, it was a crazy, crazy story. I'm, I'm glad to hear you're okay. Uh, has I that, am. Has I that am. prompted a major lifestyle change? Smoking's the big on, one was no head. more smoking. Yeah, uh, I tell you, nothing will get you over that than looking at the, you know, the roof of an ambulance while you're going 90 <laughs> miles an hour down Wilshire. Uh, that was it. It was over. Is the heroin completely out for you oh, now? No, is that- no, 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 no. I, I can manage that. <laughs> <laughs> just, just weekends, occasional weekends. That's it. That's and the it. odd day. Yeah, and holidays and, <laughs> and every day. During podcasts. <laughs> sort of I'm so glad you're okay. And uh, there's a wonderful thread that goes throughout the film. I don't want to spoil too much uh, of the film for people uh, who haven't seen it yet, obviously. But there is, a, there is a thread that runs throughout the film where Dick Cheney does have heart attacks in the most wonderfully matter-of-fact way. <laughs> and... How much of that it was derived from from truth? Because there's, again, there's a thing at the beginning of the movie where you go, "This is a very inscrutable subject," and finding out the truth about Dick Cheney and what went down is difficult. But we tried. We tried. Yeah, he is a character who has done. He's a real person who has done everything he can to make sure that no one tells his story. I mean, his autobiography is a like a court deposition. It's so boring. <laughs> and there's no breadcrumbs. Not only are there no breadcrumbs, there's no path. And <laughs> But, you know, God bless the many, many incredible journalists out there who have written articles, books, interviews. And, uh, and oddly enough, his wife, his wife wrote an autobiography that was incredibly helpful. So we, we dug in to all of that. We hired our own journalists who interviewed people from his world, all off the record, of course, just to make sure we weren't crazy people with the conclusions we were drawing. And um, it, was, it was a little bit like a, uh, a mystery uh, the whole thing. And then when you're going to really dive into a character, who do you call but Christian Bale? And then you call Amy Adams and, and the cast we had, and they all dove right in there with me. And uh, 
the whole movie was kind of driven by this idea of like, who was this guy that mm. changed world history? I mean, like without exaggeration, you know, changed the direction of human history. And yet all we know about him is he shot a guy in the face and, uh, and you know, Bush was silly and it seemed like he was doing stuff. I mean, yeah. that's kind of what most people knew about him. So it was a exciting process. And part of that was his, his heart trouble. And, yeah. and he had a lot of heart attacks. We actually, there's one heart attack that's not even in there because there were so many. Uh, but during the seventies, he was smoking three packs of cigarettes a day and eating a dozen donuts a day oh, that'll do in, it. The, in the Ford white house. That'll do it. That'll get you there. Um, <laughs> but he's a tough cost, man. He comes from, you know, Wyoming, the 1950s, hard, hard people. And, uh, he would have the heart attacks and take a little bit of a beat and then just come right back over and over again. It's uh, darkly hilarious, the, the heart attacks. So just with the matter-of-fact way that, that, that Bale plays them. He plays, um, oh my God, he kills uh, me the way he plays it. He's fantastic. Yeah. And his performance, I mean, Jesus. Is Christian Bale actually <laughs> under there? Is that we, we joke dark that, magic? Uh, Christian Bale is actually played by a guy named Dan Belmont, <laughs> who's from South Carolina. <laughs> who goes about uh, 165, he's a redhead, and he <laughs> plays Christian Bale, who then plays the characters. Um, no, it's, I've never seen anything like it. I really haven't. I mean, I guess, you know, if you're David O. Russell on The Fighter, that was another one where it was yeah. like, holy moly. But um, when he finally dialed in the physical transformation, the weight gain, the uh, all the mannerisms, the layers and layers of psychological research he does. I mean, people talk about the physical transformation, but honest to God, the like the the psychological, the ticks, the movements are are even more impressive. And I'll never forget the day where everything lined up, the makeup, the work. Yeah, and I remember yeah. getting chills in my arm as he walked down the hallway with the Cheney walk. And That's how it was chills. Otherwise, it's more baby aspirin and off to the hospital. For you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm getting these no, chills on my chills. arm. It was good chills. It <laughs> okay. definitely was. Yeah. Did it happen on the big short? Were you looking at him? Were you thinking of Cheney already? And were you looking at Christian Bale and thinking, that's my guy? You know, it. it I wasn't thinking it during the big short. I was thinking, oh, my God, where did this guy come from? And where did this whole great cast come from? But, you know, he had one of the trickiest characters in there because it was a guy, Michael Burry, who lives his life in an interior way. He's a guy who's not looking for the spotlight. He's a guy who's not looking to be charming. And I think Christian and I found that really exciting. Mm. These characters... You know, to go to even a, a, a bigger view of the whole thing, there are so many stories nowadays in the modern world that aren't classical Joseph Campbell stories. They're these stories that are in between the stories, and they're really more and more the ones that are kind of shaping the way we live our lives. And Dick Cheney is one of those guys. He's a guy who never wanted his story to fit a three-act structure, uh, you know, Sid Field, McKee, those guys would be like, God, what do you do with this guy? And <laughs> and precisely because of that is why Christian was excited. And precisely because of that is why I thought of Christian. I thought if yeah. anyone can go into these challenging, rocky, uh, you know, ankle high waters and, <laughs> and find something worthwhile, it's going to be Christian Bale. Yeah. I, I, how involved with you during the, the development process of that character? Do you basically give Christian his head, you say, go away, 
forge the character, do what you need to do to get into the headspace, come back in for rehearsal and we'll see where you are? Or do you check with him every day? Do you see the, the, the performance taking shape? We, we had a bunch of meetings at his house, about three or four, because I had done so much research. Mm. I mean, more research than was probably healthy. And <laughs> I knew a lot about Dick Cheney. So we would just sit and Christian would ask me questions and questions and questions. And I would tell him what I was thinking. And then he would tell me something else. And we did this a bunch of times. And I kept telling him, I was like, ignore me if you need to. Uh, but this is what I've found. And then at one point he did ignore me. And then at one point he went <laughs> and dove into his own process very in an incredibly deep and personal way for God, like a good couple months. And then as he started coming out of his own personal process, he came back to me Okay, and he would have certain things that he was like, yeah, you were right about this. This is interesting. Or you know what? You said this, but I found this. So we kind of reconnected on the back end. Uh, you're a very politically active guy, as anyone who knows your work or indeed follows you on Twitter will know. You and Will did the uh, the, the Bush uh, Broadway show a few years ago, so you're clearly very aware of, of who Cheney was and how sure. he worked within that power structure. Uh, but what point did you think, you know what, I want to skewer this guy. <laughs> I want to nail him to the wall. Well, you know, the, the we always knew that Cheney was a powerful force. I think kind of in a very pop culture way, a lot of people would joke that he was pulling the puppet strings. Yeah, he's a very Machiavellian figure. It's very easy to poke fun at. Yeah, yeah. And we looked at those kinds of characters from history. We looked at, uh, you know, Talleyrand and all these kind of characters who would be in the, the back shadows. And what I really decided was not that I want to nail him to the wall, but I want to understand what the human being here is. Mm -hmm. And And really a lot of the effort was who are these people that are that are doing this? Who are these people that are changing history? Who are these people that are making these decisions behind closed doors that are that are affecting our lives? And we obviously encountered it with the the bankers in the big short. And, and I would have asked the same, and we we did have the same question: like, who are these banking CEOs that how do you stare at the the carnage of those decisions? And how are you raised and who are you and how do you manage this? And so really the goal with Cheney and, and I have some friends who are very far on the left who are a little bit like, really, you're going to humanize this guy. And I, mm. I just felt like it's the only way to go. I think like if we just call people heroes or villains or good or bad, it accomplishes nothing. People are complicated. You know, I believe basically we're good and we get to these kind of twisted, turned around places through uh, interesting stories. So that's kind of what we went after. Is that something that uh, you discovered as you went along that, you know, not not completely humanized, not to make them entirely sympathetic, uh, but to to find some grace notes? I think those moments where I started seeing his humanity and I was I really – I don't know if I was surprised, but I, it was it was important that he accepted his daughter when she came out of the closet so quickly, and he embraced her so wholeheartedly. And you really saw a lot of moments of humanity from him, especially early on. And the people we talked to would always tell you a great sense of humor. He cooks dinner for his family every night. He does all the shopping. It's and there there was a, a warmth. There was a father there. And, and a lot of other people would tell you he really cared about the country and thought that he was a, a servant for the country. A lot of these stories were from the early days, from the 70s and the 80s. 
And then these same people would tell you that something changed uh, yeah. coming into the W. Bush years. And, and that was really it. That was the question. What, what changed? Mm. I mean, I had a crazy lunch. God, how long ago was this? I think it was when Will and I were doing the George W. Bush uh, one-man show on Broadway, You're Welcome, America. Mm. And we got a call that uh, Bill Clinton wanted to have lunch with us up at his office in uh, Harlem. And so, of course, we're like, yes, we'll be there. And I expected it to be like 12 people at a big lunch table, but it wasn't. It was just Bill Clinton, Farrell, myself, and then like an assistant kind of seated two seats away from us. And we talked about a lot of things, but I don't know why. Once again, it goes goes back to my fascina- fascination with Cheney. I just said, what's the deal with Dick Cheney? And Clinton told me a story that Cheney called him after Clinton had, had his heart attack. And there was actually a little bit of warmth and like, are you doing okay? And then he said, you know, in the middle of conversation, it was just like everything got, it was like Cheney realized what he was doing and everything just got very cold (laughs) and very quickly he was off the phone. And then I asked Clinton, I said, what do you think changed about him? And Clinton kind of got a far away look in his eyes and was like, I don't know. And I was like, do you think it was the heart attacks? And he's, he really was like, I don't know, but the consensus seemed to be that something changed about this guy. And and my conclusion was that it was, he was always a guy seeking power. He was always a guy who was a little bit paranoid, but then when nine 11 hit, it just jacked everything times 10. So that's the way we portray it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that, that key question, I mean, I I'm definitely open to someone telling me we didn't get it right, but mm-hmm. I think we did. Mm-hmm. I, it felt right to me. There seems to be a lot of anger in this movie. A lot of anger about the way the world is now. Sure. Uh, a lot of anger about the way that <laughs> the decisions made back then have led the world being the way it is now. Uh, is that fair to say? You Are you angry about the state of the world, Adam? Or you-, you know, I, I think it's more, I'm incredulous. Yeah. I, I think it's more that the whole experience of the last 20 years has been one of like, I, you know, I was joking with someone the other day that you could call the big short and vice and whatever the third movie I'm going to do after this, you could call it the what the holy F happened <laughs> trilogy. And I don't know, man. I mean, maybe this is just I'm 50 years old now. And when you get older, you just sound like a cranky old man. But call me nuts, man. But having like a, you know, an orange reality stars, our presidents and, you know, we have to like, I just read something that like. Like 49% of Americans don't even know we're still at war in, in uh, Afghanistan. Like there's every day this cascade of craziness and just upside down kind of nature to civilization. Mm-hmm. And I know you guys are seeing it over here in the UK mm-hmm. and I know we're seeing it in Poland and Hungary and Venezuela and on and other Philippines and Russia. And yeah, it seems like civilization got kind of exhausted. So is it, Anger, yeah, a little bit, but I, more, I think it's just uh, shock um, <laughs> that that sometimes drifts into anger and like, hey, has anyone noticed this? Um, <laughs> so, and then a lot of times sadness. I mean, yeah. I think that, you know, this movie too, really in the end strikes me every time I watch the ending, I get, I get very sad. There are moments in this film, Trump appears very, very briefly. There's an archive shot of Trump. Uh, I imagine you debated long and hard about including that or including more Trump. We had a lot of discussions about that. Yeah. And and he pops up in the 80s 
And my editor, the, the great Hank Corwin, and I decided that that's where he belongs. He was an 80s celebrity. Uh, he was part of that kind of cartoonish period. And mm. that's where you should see him. Mm. So beyond that, we did not. We did, decided not to show him, not to talk about him. But that that felt like his place in history. And uh, yeah, I, I don't view him as a as a decision-making force in the world right now. He is definitely a symptom. He's, you know, uh, you know, if you get a, a boil, you don't, you don't go, Oh my God, why is this boil doing this to me? It's like, no, the boil <laughs> comes from something. Or if, you know, if you get poison Ivy in your yeah. ear, you don't get mad at your ear. It's, um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should, maybe we should fuck know. you ear. I'm not sure <laughs> that metaphor works at all, but, um, I'll take it. Yeah. We just felt like, ah, I'm not going to get into that. I mean, there's clearly bigger problems afoot. <laughs> I am fascinated by the evolution of your technique, uh, because this is, uh, I'd say very much the, the visual and editing style of the big short, but pushed even further. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but there are stylistic digressions throughout the film that really tickled me. That really surprised me. You play with the form, you play with narrative, you play with the timelines. Um, where did that come from for you? Because uh, I guess you could say that both Anchorman movies are maybe not beholden to three act structure either. That you know, mm-hmm. uh, but with a big short and with this movie, it does feel very fractured and fragmented, which is a very deliberate thing. It feels like you're pushing the form in, a, in an interesting way. You know, we we talked about this a lot uh, with the big short. It naturally came out of that kind of. Oh wait, sorry. One you're right. Second, I have. Uh, I don't want to get too personal. I have, hem- I have hemorrhoids. Oh, okay. <laughs> I will cut that bit out. Don't even no, no, leave that in. I insist. In fact, I'm going to say that with pride. Should I we, have hemorrhoids. Should we just do what uh, people of a certain age do and just exchange our, our medical information? Oh, my God. I know. I'm a bit of a mess. <laughs> a bit of a mess of late. Although getting better. Oh, good. Um, you know, I think with the big short, it came out of the fact that there was this irrational exuberance to the economy that just lent itself to this kind of frenetic crazed kind of rolling down a hill kind of style. And, and then I think what we started seeing, uh, and I would include the TV show, uh, succession in oh, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, which I was lucky enough to get to work with on, uh, with Jesse Armstrong. I got yeah. to direct the pilot and, you know, uh, help with the casting and the style. And, and we talked about it a lot with succession as well, where, what is the tone of today? And where does comedy live today? And what is funny and what is tragic and what is the narrative? And it just it just feels like we're in a time where, where these things can be questioned and in a uh, exciting way and mm. kind of, a, you know, an upsetting way as well. So, I, I, you know, we worked on Succession. I was working on Vice and... All of it just felt like, no, we should push the tone. We should push the narrative. I think you can have really dark tragedy living next to absurd comedy. And it's just felt like what we were going through in the world right now. And um, and at the same time, also, we were clearly kind of driving into kind of unknown territory. I mean, it was definitely... Uh, a lot of fog or snow blinding our windshield as we went in with succession. I mean, Jesse and I would joke about it. Like I would be like, this is really dark, but at the same time, it's really making me laugh. And at the same time, the vulnerability of the characters, I actually oddly care about them, 
but I'm not sure your general public will. And so we talked a lot about like Neil LeBute was really a guy who I felt like was on that tip very early in the yeah. company of men, friends and neighbors. And we looked at, uh, you know, or do you remember a movie, Man Bites Dog? Mm -hmm. um, oh, God, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those yeah. kinds of movies. Another one of my favorite, uh, Mail Order Wife by Andrew Gerlin, where you have this dark reality mixed with this absurdist comedy. And I guess when you see, like, the supposed leader of your country after the northern part of your state is totally burned down, mm -hmm. and he's giving a speech about raking the woods mm -hmm. and how we need to rake the woods – I just don't, I don't know what to make of that. I mean, that's really funny, but really upsetting at the same time. And we just keep having moments like those over and over again. So yeah, uh, I, I just gave you a very long winded answer. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think my answer is like, we don't entirely know either, but we know things are changing and we yeah. just kind of jumped into the breach. It feels like reality is outpacing satire at the moment. It just... I mean, that's it, right? Yeah, it's, it's as fast as you can write this stuff, he's writing it faster. It's, I, I just never knew the disintegration of modern civilization would be so ludicrous. <laughs> I never knew it would play like a bad early 80s. I never knew it would play like small wonder. <laughs> but it is. Yeah. It is. feels like we're all slim pickings. We're all riding a nuclear bomb on the way down. Uh, the uh, by the way, that, that image may sum it all up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I want to ask about how this new narrative approach from a filmmaking point of view plays out in your scripts. Well, you know, it, it, the initial approach to the movie was we're going to treat this movie like it's giant. We're going to treat this movie like it's Citizen Kane, like it's Reds, like it's the big, giant, epic American story or Last Picture Show is another one we talked about. And we just talked about scope and vistas. And, and at the same time, we also know that, you know, storytelling is changing. There's, you know, millions and millions of videos on phones and mm -hmm. streaming and movies and audiences are crazily sophisticated now. I mean, it's amazing what you can get away with. Like a movie like Cabin in the Woods, like 25 years ago would have been like, you know, some German art film. And now audiences are, are right with it. And, um, and you know, get out. And there's just so many cool, interesting things. Sorry to bother you. I thought it was like a really oh, yeah. exciting, interesting movie. First film, debut uh, film. And he's uh, he's pushing it in that direction. A hundred percent. That movie blew me away. His confidence, my God. Oh, I can't wait to see what he does next. So yeah. I saw him recently. I was like, man, anything you need, I will do craft service for you. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're, we're in this zone where, like I said before, you know, in a way, the, the the power forms have adapted. They're not going to let us do Joseph Campbell's stories about them anymore. It's not going to be a simple hero's journey. They become more complicated. They're dodging us. They're mirroring us. They're yeah. Yeah. they're pretending they're the hero's journey. And and you know what? Uh, billionaires they're on a tough road because. They have all this money and they're supposed to feel bad about it, but God darn it, they earned it. And maybe they're the hero. And you go, wait a minute, that didn't seem right. They inherited the money. <laughs> and so there's this kind of, I'm reminded of the stories from uh, Vietnam, supposedly, where they would leave landmines uh -huh. and then the enemy would come and flip all the landmines to off. And then the U.S. soldiers would come back and flip them to on. And then the enemies wouldn't flip them. 
expecting the U.S. to think they had, and it's like this back and forth. And I think that's kind of going on with the the storytelling round. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's I mean, let's face it. That's where most of this battle exists is with mythology, with belief, with storytelling. Uh, once again, incredibly long-witted answer. Uh, maybe a little self-important, too. Uh, you know what? It's a podcast, man. If we can get away with it, we can get away with long-winded. We can certainly get away with self-important. Let's it's just totally go back fine. to Dobie. Let's go back to Dobie. Oh, Dobie. Oh, oh Dobie. He bottle-fed that shark. <laughs> what is next for you? You mentioned that you, you might have a, a third part of this What the Fuck trilogy <laughs> up your sleeve. Well, you know, sadly, the the big ball of reality that's just uh, the big uh, house moving castle of reality that's coming over the horizon line is uh, global warming, man. It's just I wish it wasn't the case. There are other more enjoyable stories I'd rather tell, but I want to see if I can crack something with that. At the same time, you know, I don't know. I, it'd be fun to go back to a rip-roaring comedy. I, I miss laughing with Will Ferrell on set all day. So <laughs> he and I are kicking some stuff around. Um, I have learned through the years, never predict what movie you're going to do next while you're still taking out your new movie because I've always been wrong. Um, but somewhere in that zone, I mean, if I could think of a global warming absurdist comedy with Will Ferrell and John That's C. Riley. That would be that would make me very happy, but uh, but I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> Step Brothers Two just took a whole new direction. <laughs> I, 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 believe me, it crossed my mind. It crossed my mind. That is interesting because I, I've I've been musing about this for a while about Hollywood's responsibility to not lecture people, but to inform people about global warming, because a lot of people have shut their ears to the whole thing and. Sure. Uh, do you think that Hollywood has a, a responsibility that it is very important? It has it reaches millions of people in, in, in a way that they they don't really listen to politicians. I, I think you know any decent storyteller, whether it's movies, music, novels, whatever, you can't ignore reality. I think that's just what it's about. And you know, if all of a sudden the entire world became infested with lemurs, and there were lemurs like living in apartment buildings, climbing in trees, howling, shrieking, throwing their poop at us every single day. And then I did it, you know, a movie where there were no lemurs. You go, how do you not have lemurs? Like, <laughs> just a terrible example. I apologize once this again. Is like go the back to fourth Dolby. bad analogy. This go, is there's some really bad analogies coming the way. Although now I kind of like it. Now it's growing on me. Yeah. So I feel like with climate change, it's the same thing, man. This is mammoth. I mean, it is gigantic, and to ignore it just feels like. You know, it just feels like you're shooting Novocaine into your brain. It just feels wrong when I watch things that, you know, don't at least somewhat address that. And, you know, Jesse Armstrong and I have talked about this for succession. Like, you know, it's you want the show to deal with reality, yet you don't want reality to be steering the show. Mm -hmm. You just want to acknowledge what the topography of the physical world is and where we're at. So mm -hmm. it's always a tricky thing because, like you said, it can become preachy. It become it can become hectoring, and you never want to do that. You know that's uh, part of the reason that we we screw around with this form, and and I think laughter has to be a part of it. I think I think there can be all kinds of different feelings. You can be afraid, you can be confused, you can be interested, and uh, but whenever it becomes a, a wagging finger, you're in a little bit of trouble. Well, it was announced this week that Will is returning as Ron Burgundy for a podcast. Are you involved with that, or is that? 
I'm actually not. I'm, okay. I'm involved with it in the sense that I could not be happier. <laughs> no, he had mentioned it to me. I was like, oh, my friend, please give me that. And uh, and now that you mention it, I will make sure one of the podcasts open opens with the Dobie song. That oh, has to happen. Yeah, has to. He touches all with his expressionless face. He does. He really does. does. Adam McKay, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much indeed. Always a pleasure. So good to see you, man. Okay, so that was Adam McKay. We will be reviewing Feist on next week's show. But now we come to the movie reviews portion of this week's show. How exciting. We're going to be tackling three films of such lethal cunning. Hmm. No? Doesn't, no, no, I'm not trying not to really. get that catchphrase off the ground. Doesn't work. Oh, well. Back to the drawing board. Uh, let's start off by talking about M. Night Shyamalan's Glass which is, of course, a sequel to his most recent thriller hit, Split, which turned out to be a stealth sequel to Unbreakable. His 2000, and I'm going to use this word, masterpiece. Ooh, fair. Mm, his best film, I would say, in which Bruce Willis's David Dunn was revealed to be a superhero and indeed had a super nemesis, a supervillain nemesis played by Samuel L. Jackson. And when that was revealed, I lost my shit. Because I love Unbreakable and I've been wanting an Unbreakable sequel for many, many years. I never thought it was going to happen, but now we have one. And we have an Unbreakable sequel and a split sequel in the shape of glass, which brings Bruce Willis's David Dunn, brings Samuel L. Jackson's Elijah Price, a.k.a. Mr. Glass, and brings James McAvoy's Kevin Wendell Crumb, a.k.a. so many characters. <laughs> I can't even begin to list them here. And uh, does interesting things with them, shall we say. Before we get into the film... Here's a little clip. David Dunn, you believe you are exceptionally strong, but there are men who are as strong as you. Kevin Wendell Crump. You believe there are two dozen souls living in that body with you. You can call me Norma. I'm so amped! Elijah Price, you have an extraordinary IQ. You think you are superhuman. What if I suggested that you are mistaken? They've been lying to us all. All right, so that was a clip from Glass, and now let's get into Glass. Glass? Who gives a shit about Glass? Well, I certainly did when I went to see this. Uh, Love Unbreakable to Bits, and this picks up 19 years after that film with David Dunn has been keeping Philadelphia safe as he's been nicknamed by the public the Overseer, the super strong, indestructible vigilante. Meanwhile, Kevin Wendell Crumb, who we last saw in Split, is still abducting young ladies, and the two of them come together, and then... Not in a sex way. Not in a sex way. Well, a bit in a sex way. No, not in a sex way. And then this goes in, shall we say, an unexpected direction you'll see this from the trailer but they are shall we say put together with mr glass in a uh in institutional setting and m night Shyamalan then delivers if i'm honest from my point of view a film that no one really asked for this is a very talky film and it's it tries to double don't like that, words don't like words <laughs> like action action speak louder than words but, but what i really like about unbreakable is actually the character beats mm. i like that it's slow i like it's textured it's rich it's very very slow moving it's very gradual in its revelation and i think he tried to embrace that here but the character beats here i found just didn't didn't hit home in the same way i think uh, james mcavoy as he was in split is superb in this he plays you know two dozen characters and he does them all brilliantly it's a tour de force performance from him Samuel L. Jackson to my mind has not enough to do mm. and Bruce Willis has almost nothing to do yep. and so you have a film where you're not getting what you want from it for the first two thirds and then the last third puts the arse in glass 
It's just <laughs> dreadful. I mean, it, it just drives, this film drives off a cliff in the third act. And it, I mean, I was absolutely mortified by it because this is a film, one of the films I was most looking forward to this year. And I think that final act really just, I was, I was bereft. Yeah, I think he tries to do something really, really interesting with, you know, so he basically puts them all in this psychiatric institute and has mm. Sarah Paulson going, no, you're all deluded. Like, you don't have superpowers, you just have problems and this is how you're dealing with them. And that's a really interesting way to come at it because it was always a very grounded superhero movie. These people are not necessarily superhuman. There's always been that little bit of wiggle room. So that was a really, really interesting take. And then it just falls apart again. <laughs> and James, you're totally right. Like the character moments and the character weight isn't there to make that movie work and then to make this last act have any sort of meaning. I mean, there's so much interesting stuff in it. There's so many interesting ideas in it. Um, but it just doesn't go where it I don't know. It just doesn't go. No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. It's a real shame. It's a real missed opportunity, especially since we've been waiting two decades to see Unbreakable mm. continued. And this is what I was saying about earlier. It's like, like now I will forever see David Dunn. And when I'm watching Unbreakable, I will see David Dunn in this, in it, and be annoyed. <laughs> I loved the setup, the idea. And the first kind of 20 minutes, I was kind of there with it. And Helen's completely right. There is some interesting kind of thematic stuff and things about group psychoses and and all of those things are kind of really fascinating, but it unravels so quickly. It's chaotic and not in a good way. Not in a, You know, you can have structured chaos in really great films. There was no structured chaos. It was just chaos and noise. James is right. The dialogue was like, there was so much dialogue, but it wasn't great dialogue. Mm. Um, and actually the tension between it being part split, sequel, part unbreakable, sequel, that tension never resolved itself. Mm. It starts to do really interesting things in terms of what are the tropes of superhero movies and how can we subvert them and append them. As a fan of superhero films, um, without giving anything away, you end up disappointed at the upending of those tropes. So moments are anticlimactic and they are obtusely and deliberately anticlimactic yeah. because it's a filmmaking choice. Mm -hmm. But as a paying audience member, mm -hmm. it's not what I wanted to see. I think McAvoy is phenomenal. It's a masterclass. It's a McAvoy masterclass, like, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I find him completely compelling. He mm -hmm. held the entire thing together. But, I mean, Bruce, never has Bruce Willis been more wasted. Yeah. It's yeah. ridiculous. I think the problem is that Knight fell in love with McAvoy as well and just yes. gave him so much of the screen time and presumably cut down on everybody else to make mm. room for it. Because if there was this little on the page, I, I don't understand why they'd be there. It's such a showy character, the Horde, Kevin mm. Wendell Crumb mm. and his various uh, personae that... Um, it becomes easy just to give him all the stuff to do. And McAvoy's amazing. Yeah. He would transform between characters literally in one shot. And I think he was phenomenal in Split as well. And it's one of those movies that the uh, the Oscar cognoscenti looked down their noses at. But honestly, he should have been in the conversation for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and all of the places in Best Supporting and, Actor. And Best Supporting Actress. Yes. Yeah, and yep. best, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Why not? Give him, give him everything. <laughs> Yeah, and again, without giving too much away, I think Knight falls into the same trap on a number of occasions throughout his career where early on he became known as a filmmaker who can do a sting like no other. He can do mm. a twist. And you get the impression now that he's become such a slave to that that he structures entire films around a clever ending without thinking about making the rest of the film entertaining. And it's just like this. It feels like where he wanted to go with this was ill-conceived from the get-go. And I think Terry's right. It begins really well. The, the first sort of like 15, 20 minutes are 
almost that's the film I wanted to mm. see. But that's that's the thing. It's the, the trap you can fall into of you're disappointed at the film because it's not the film you wanted to see. I get that, but we have to review the film it is. Problem is, the film it is isn't very good. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it is, it's true. I think he is deliberately giving people a little carrot with the first 20 minutes, which yeah. is fairly conventional and it is, you know... David Dunn and Kevin Wentle Crumb and you know not giving too much away that they meet and there's a there's a, a a conflict and it's cool and you're going yes and then the one flew over the cuckoo's nest style second it's not well I guess the second act it, some of that works as well there's some really interesting stuff with uh, dunderheaded security guards I mean the security in this place is terrible yeah. and they should <laughs> all be fired immediately but you're waiting for the ticking time bomb of Elijah to to come to fruition. Hmm. But in that, you're right, David Dunn is, is is buried and I'm really disappointed with that because, you know, I'm a huge Bruce Willis fan, as I think we all are. And, you know, he's been trapped in a sort of DTV hell uh, over the last few years, making some truly questionable movies. And the opportunities have been rare for a director to actually challenge him or a piece of material to challenge him. And I thought that's what that was going to happen this time around. But it's almost mm. like he only had five or six days available. It's not good, you know, when you come out of a Bruce Willis film and you think, you know what, that's no striking distance. <laughs> Love striking distance. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Sarah Jessica Parker's finest moment on screen. Okay. <laughs> Should dig into that another time. But yeah, I'd say the first, the first uh, 20 minutes is great. The, the next hour and a half or so is okay. And the last 20 minutes screws the pooch in an almost heroic fashion. Uh, but perhaps it, it might be one of the things where... We look back at it in a few years' time and it clicks into place what, what he was going for, which I think a which lot of people happened. found with Unbreakable. Yeah. But I loved Unbreakable at the time. So, so did I. You yeah. know. I, I came out of that and didn't thought it was a revelation. Yeah, but anyway. Um, three stars. Three stars for Glass. I know it may not sound like it around <laughs> the table, but three stars for Glass. Uh, next up, we have Beautiful Boy, in which Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet star as a father who fears that he is losing his son, and in fact he is losing his son, to addiction to crystal meth. Here is a clip. I've been doing some research. Been doing fucking research? You gotta no. be kidding me, Dad. You think that you have this under control. Mm-hmm. And I understand how scared you are. I understand why I do things. It doesn't make me any different, all right? I'm attracted to craziness, and you're just embarrassed because I was like, you know, I was like this amazing thing, like your special creation or something, and you don't like who I am now. Yeah, who are you, Nick? This is me, Dad. Here, this is who I am. All right, so that was Timothy Chalamet going head-to-head with Steve Carell. Terry, what do we make of this film? So in many respects, this is kind of a traditional addiction tale. It is the story of a nice middle-class white boy played by Timothy Chalamet, who plays Nick Sheff, and his father played by Steve Carell, and what happens to their relationship and the wider family relationship when he gets lost in addiction. Now, it's based on two memoirs, one by the father. So um, he's actually a journalist for Rolling Mm -hmm. Stone and New York Times and his son. um, And it's kind of a meeting of those two memoirs. Now, this was kind of touted for quite a while as being awards fodder, of being maybe kind of Timothy's best performance. I was left quite underwhelmed by this. I think it was quite unsatisfying from a storytelling perspective. So I think there is absolutely a valid conversation around what does addiction in a privileged situation look like? I think, what does it look like when you are a middle-class boy who has money at your disposal? There's never any sense in this film that he works for his money, that he struggles to get money. 
But what it is really great at is it, it really examines the kind of consequences on the wider family from his kind of uh, half-brothers and sisters to his dad's marriage. He's married for a second time to Maura Tierney, who is amazing in this mm. film, I have to say. She's the real standout for me. You never really get your fingers around why. What are the pressures? What are the distinct pressures to being in that scenario that would lead to that addiction? Mm. I personally found some of the drug scenes especially the scenes of him shooting up i found them far too graphic there's a pairing of those graphic scenes of him using drugs paired with a certain score that i felt really romanticized it i understand that you've got to show why he would fall so deeply for this drug but i think it crossed a line for me mm. and some of the emotional punch just wasn't there. And I think because it was based on two memoirs, you had not necessarily a conflicting point of view, but it shifts in the middle of the film from being kind of his father's story to being his, but there's no real difference really in their perspectives. Um, I felt their performances were a little bit underwhelming. So I think addiction and recovery um, films are really difficult because there's how you feel about AA, kind of all the um, bigger debates around addiction and what you should show on screen and, and all of that stuff. So I think they're really tricky. But this one left me feeling a little bit cold. Well, I have to say, I really liked it. I mean, and like is the wrong word completely because it's a really tough watch. It's one of those films where even if you want to recommend it to someone, you kind of have to go, but like, you know, it's incredibly depressing and, and sad mm. um, for most of the running time because it is looking at someone who's at a father who has completely lost his son and a guy who not only has one focus in life and will do anything for that focus, even though it's killing him. And he's kind of aware of that, even in the sort of indestructibility of his youth. I think he, he he's aware of that on some level. And it's it's just, it's really, really upsetting. I thought Carell was brilliant, actually. I thought he was incredibly good. The, the opening scene is him going to a doctor, a, a specialist in um, addiction and, and essentially saying, my son is addicted to meth. I believe that's bad. Please tell me how bad. And it's just destroyed me pretty much from start to finish. So I think it is really good at showing the effects of addiction on a family and the effects beyond the one person whose life is being ruined by his or her own actions. It's also showing all the lives around them and how they're affected mm -hmm. and how this really loving son and brother um, is suddenly like literally stealing from his baby sister's piggy bank. I mean, really sort of pathetic desperation. And that I thought was quite, again, just quite, it's obviously not as much of a misery fest as some drug addiction no. dramas by any means, because as you say, they're a very comfortably off, very mm. privileged family. But that almost allows you to focus a bit more on the emotional strain that it's putting on them, because it's not just about everything. It's not everything piling up on them mm. at once. It's interesting because, yeah, I guess we don't want to be glib about this in any way, shape or form, but Timothy Chalamet looks like Timothy Chalamet all the way through this movie. And, you know, I'm no expert on this this sort of stuff, but uh, from Breaking Bad, which has taught me everything I need to know about meth addiction, uh, I expected there to be a bit more of a physical decline. He gets and... very skinny. But there's a beautiful and the damned out of this. There's a mm. scene where he literally goes, this poet saved my life so many times, and he starts to read Charles Bukowski. And I think that whole as I say, romanticised kind yeah, but, of... And I don't mind him being middle class and being comfortable, yeah, but, that's, but... But that's such a disaffected teenage boy cliche. Yeah. I think it's it almost like shows the banality of his 
of his problems. And there's the scene where his dad references it and goes, you know, there will be one day when you you don't read these writers who you think understand how alienated you are. But then the Bukowski scene comes up and a girl looks him across the room, really, you know, and falls in love with him at that moment. But I think that the fact that it, they were comfortable and, and therefore you did expect more from the emotional side of it, I think that's why I felt so underwhelmed because there wasn't any other drama going on. It was very much about his drugs. And, and like you're saying, Chris, I didn't really see or feel any huge consequences of his drug use so the scene where yeah he steals and then kind of he goes missing for a bit but there was something quite surface to the whole thing for me which felt like I really didn't believe in the ultimate emotional and physical disintegration that goes on with heavy meth users that really does go on with heavy meth we wanted more degradation (laughs) that's what we wanted Helen we wanted to see people's arms fall off which I understand is a side effect well, Chris, I mean, given that you're an expert on meth, having watched Breaking Bad, um, I'm, I'm sure you would know. Twice. Oh, hang on. Steady on. Yeah, yeah no, listen, I just I just thought it was, I thought Corral basically slayed yeah. me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for, you know, parent and child kind of tragic tragedies. So this really worked for me. I'm with you on the opening scene, though. That was, mm. I found that scene probably one of the most affecting in it. You know, and I understand that kind of part of the um, familial problem is, you have to emotionally cut yourself off and some of that obviously comes through in in his performance but it the power lessened for me as the as the film went on again it seems childish to say this but it's a real life story and it obviously happened and they they suffered tragedy together uh and as a family but it there was a bit repetitive as well as a movie a bit repetitive uh i think he relapses he 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 recovers and relapses recovers and relapses recovers and relapses and that just felt a little bit grinding from a from a cinematic point of view i thought the performances were very very good though i think steve carell is great and as someone who's going through an office rewatch at the moment it was lovely to see him and amy ryan together uh, <laughs> although i can't remember if they actually share any scenes but they certainly share a phone call and yeah, she plays his ex-wife they do share a they scene of course they do yes because, of course, uh, that's Michael Scott and Holly Flax from The Office, and that's lovely. But four stars then for Beautiful Boy. If you want to check that out this weekend, go ahead. Uh, time now then for our last movie, which is Mary, Queen of Scots, in which Saoirse Ronan stars as Mary, Queen of Scots, who returns to Scotland to assume her throne. But meanwhile, in England, her cousin, Queen Elizabeth, Margot Robbie, is threatened by new Catholic monarch Helen can you imagine such a thing oh, terror. a Catholic on the oh, throne nightmare what is going on before we get into what's going on let's hear a clip we have a scourge upon our land there's a woman with a crown your beauty bravery. Now I see there's no cause for envy. Your gifts will be your downfall. Should you murder me, remember you murder your sister. And you murder your queen. That was a trailer for Mary Queen of Scots and now Helen O'Hara, the person who wrote the Empire Review, please unload upon Mary Queen of Scots. (laughs) Uh, yeah, this is uh, this is an interesting one. First of all, it's you know beautifully staged, uh, beautiful looking, not terribly convincing always in terms of its history. I mean, Mary's Scottish castle is half hewn from the bare rock, apparently, which I'm not quite what Hollywood House looks like, but fine. What's the time frame for this movie, by the way? Because I just did a quick bit of Wikipedia. Oh, amazing! Uh, I haven't seen the film yet. 
but I read that Mary Queen of Scots was in her 40s, according to Wikipedia, when she was... Uh, but she was in prison for like, a long time first, though. She was in right. prison for about, I think it was nine years or something. So does that cover that, that period? Um, or is this like all this take place in a week? Essentially goes up to the point where she was imprisoned and then there's a little bit later right. on, but not really. Okay. Um, the, the, the focus is much earlier. So she she had gone as a essentially a baby to be married to the king of France to be. The Dauphin. The Dauphin. Thank you. He became Francis II, if memory serves, but was a bit rubbish and died quite soon after. I mean, he wasn't rubbish because he died, but he was also rubbish. <laughs> so she came back to Scotland um, and was one of the most sort of eligible bachelorettes in Europe at the time. And the problem was that the, most of the Scottish lawyers by this point were not just like sort of touchy-feely, tea with vicar, Church of Scotland, but like quite, quite extreme kind of puritanical Protestantism. So they did not exactly welcome this Catholic queen and a ruling queen as well was still pretty controversial at the time. So she had trouble with her own lords, never mind her cousin in England, who wasn't entirely comfortable with another Catholic queen on the island either. Mm. So it's it's setting up a really, really uncomfortable situation. Um, Saoirse Ronan, who does a Scottish accent, which is probably wrong historically. I would have thought she'd have a French, but fine. Apparently she did have a French accent. Oh, yes, go. I read that. But, uh, but I guess it kind of makes sense. But uh, she comes back and... Apparently she's just in a really bad French accent. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we can trust her. Um, immediately tangles with David Tennant's John Knox, who immediately starts preaching against her. Her half-brother James, who's played by James McCardle, is fabulous. Um, he's basically her closest ally, but even his loyalties tested. Um, she makes an extremely bad choice of marriage. She's then forced into an even worse marriage. It's not a good time for her, but it is um, it is quite a, an entertaining zip through her life. And they, what they've done with this film is to give it a real weirdly modern mm. feminist twist, yeah. which is to basically discuss the fact that these two women were both isolated in a in a man's world very much where they were forced to compete against each other essentially when each of them is the only person that might understand the other's situation so it's a it's a classic you know technique the patriarchy boo um (laughs) but but it is it's it's quite an effective way of looking at it and it's an angle that we haven't seen endlessly on mary queen of scots before because i feel like we've seen a lot of stories about oh you know tragic oh Mm. Rain. R- romantic, oh, whatever else. Well, Rain is hmm. the, one of the most ridiculous shows I've ever seen. It's wonderful. But yeah, Josie Warwick, the director, is, I think, find a really new spin on it, and I, I always welcome that. Yeah, I had completely colourblind casting as well, which I found yeah. was very interesting. Uh, Gerald Chan's in it, Adrian Lester's in it. Um, this is written by Bo Willimon, who kind of show ran and did House of Cards. Mm-hmm. And I, I did not love this film. I loved the performances in it. I thought Margot Robbie was great. I thought Saoirse Ronan was yeah. amazing. Uh, and I found it really interesting to watch in terms of the way it portrayed them and in terms of the way the kind of message was men are awful to women. And they have been for quite a long time. <laughs> but the my, my issue with this is it, it, it's not a pacey film. It's quite boring in places, and that's fine if you're being a slave to history, but it takes such liberties with the history that I think if you're going to do that, make it more interesting, Mm. Uh, because it didn't hold my attention, and it did really sag in places. So I kind of wish that if they were going to, because I mean, obviously, Mary Queen of Scots and and Elizabeth did not meet in a hut. I mean, that didn't happen. That's basically, uh, you know, William Wallace and Sophie Marceau getting it on in Braveheart. It's pure fiction. And so much creative license that is taken with the storyline. You feel a little bit like, okay, well, if you're going to do that, it would have killed you to have had like the Justice League in there or something. I don't know. (laughs) Make it more fun. But, you know, it's fine. Great performances. It's, you know, a little bit of history, except not actual history. Yeah, but, but you know, there's there's some bits that are very (laughs) historical and we haven't seen done endlessly, and that's good. But you're right. I mean, one key scene is... 
invented entirely. And I didn't even think it was that good a scene. So no, that was kind of disappointing. No, neither did I. But, you know, they had some lovely frocks. They did have some amazing <laughs> frocks, yeah. And, mm. and head headdresses. Yes, and yes. Everything else. It's an mm. excellent wig action. So we gave it four stars. Well, four I stars. Did. Helen gave it four stars. Helen gave it four stars. I didn't give it three. No one can agree on the star ratings. Three, three stars for the no. film, one star for historical accuracy. Okay. <laughs> All right. What about the accents? Oh, five. Where do you rate the accents on uh, a level of, oh, jeans, Crevens, where is me washboard? I don't know why I'm oh, saying I, that, but. I had no idea yeah. Sasha Ryan was on this podcast. It's <laughs> extraordinary. Holy crap, coca leaky. Is that what she says? You realise that if we ever end up going on tour with the podcast to Scotland, you're going to get lynched for that. If we were to ever take this podcast to a live show in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. If we were ever to do that, you wouldn't come out alive. That's almost certainly not going to happen at any point in the not-too-distant future. Cryptic hint. <laughs> Four stars then for Mary, Queen of Scots. Well done. Well done to the, the whole of Scots family on that. Congratulations to you. Uh, and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by... Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman. Oh, we couldn't, <gasps> we couldn't get a big star? Yeah. What? The famous interview in which I forget to press record oh, and then God. we have to start again and she thinks I'm an idiot for the rest of the interview. As yeah. it, let's be honest, I mean, most people do. It is fair. Imagine is. jumping to that conclusion within minutes of meeting you. <laughs> anyway, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from James Dyer. Goodbye. <laughs> well, I was gonna. I was obviously gonna say goodbye, and don't forget to listen to the Pilot TV podcast oh. on Monday. But of course, you'll cut it out. So you know, Jane, you made a note. You made a note, Jane. Yeah, good. All right. It's goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodle pip. Bye bye. Goodbye. I hope your cold gets better. Thank you. The evidence of that cold may have been expertly cut out of the podcast, but <laughs> believe yeah. me, Helen has a cold. I'm, I've been sneezing and coughing the whole yeah. way through. There's phlegm dripping from the ceiling. Oh, good <laughs> That's not phlegm. Oh. It's ectoplasm. <laughs> yes, precisely what I was going for. Thanks, James. <laughs> and it's goodbye from Terry White. See you. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to take a leaf out of Jason Reitman's book and finish something that my dad started doing 30 years ago. So, 1,000 piece jigsaw puzzle of Ian Paisley's face. <laughs> I'm coming for you. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye! <laughs> <laughs>